Welcome here. This is actually a book report on this book right here, The Seven Laws of Teaching. Just curious, how many sort of know about this book? All right. How many of you really know it? In other words, you got into the book, you read the thing, you've, you've uh, absorbed it. Only one hand. Okay. Seven Laws of Teaching is a book about, you guessed it, teaching. <laughs> right. And I, what I'm going to do in this uh, period is give an overview of it. I like to introduce um, the concepts, the, each of these seven laws. But before we do that, just a brief introduction about the book. This is a book that kind of puts it all together. There really is very little of teaching that isn't addressed somewhere in one of the seven laws. It has a rather fascinating history. It is by definition a classic. Classic meaning it has stood the test of time. It was originally published in 1884, so it's been around for a while. Something strange and a little sad happened to this book. In 1917, what, some 30 years after it was published, two professors sanitized the book. What I mean by sanitized is they took out all the references to scriptures and all the things that made it distinctly Christian because they felt it would get a broader reception, reach a larger audience, if it was thus sanitized. And stranger still, the original sort of got shelved or lost or forgotten or something. It went uh, into the dust. And for the next 80 years, the original manuscripts were basically unknown until there's a college in Moscow, Idaho that actually uses this as one of their uh, mainframes for one of their courses. Somebody mentioned that they don't think this is the original work and that put them on a journey and in 2004 Veritas Press, the publishing uh, division of, um, of the college there, Logo School in uh, Idaho, they reprinted the unabridged version. This is the unabridged version. What, what you see here, here's a new book. This is the unabridged 1884 edition. So if you go to buy the book, be sure, I would say, be sure you're getting whole milk. All right? The other is sort of like skim milk. It, uh, some of it's missing and it's watered down. And those of us who enjoy our milk anyway would rather have the whole than the skim. 2004, this was published. Um, CLE does sell the book. I have 10 of them here. You can have it today for $10 if you like, which is cheaper than you'll find it probably anywhere, except maybe used online. Uh, like I said, I only have 10. So first come, first served. My personal testimony, I first met the book about 20 years ago, and it was not this edition. It was the Baker House edition which is the abridged version. Um, I think it was in 98 when I first met the book. And it was at an institute similar to this where there was a series of five classes held on seven laws. It was, a, it was an eye-opener. I enjoyed it. And then later, a number of years ago, WFTI was holding a, a series of three classes on these seven laws, which I was a facilitator for those. And then um, CLE facilitates teacher training, which you're probably aware of. Well, a lot of people had taken track one, and in some communities, 
uh, some of the teachers were taking track one over and over again and so it was decided to introduce a track two to for CLE facilitated teacher training and so this became the mainframe of track two and I was asked and blessed to be able to work at the development of the uh, study guide that goes along with that. This is not easy reading. The unabridged version, version reads a good bit like the King James uh, version of scripture and a little bit later I'll be reading from this book a few snippets a few times and you'll pick up on that and so there have been people that picked up this book and thought they were going to you know learn everything there is to learn about teaching which isn't completely uh, an inaccurate aspiration but it reads harder than what many of us usually read <laughs> many of us are used to reading things that read quite a bit easier than this so one of the things you could do is <clears throat> you could attend CLE teacher training and take the course there. Or you could order that course material and do it as self-study. That would also work. Or you could just get the book and try to read it on your own. That also works. A little bit yet about the premise of the work before we get into the seven laws, the premise of the book. The, the basic premise is that overarching law governs all worthwhile human endeavor. I guess I'm on uh, your handout point number two now. Overarching laws govern all worthwhile endeavors. In other words, if a thing is worthwhile, you can actually study it. it uh, something that's worthwhile, like teaching, is more than just a, uh, a heap of fog. There, there are some solid elements to this whole thing. And that is the premise on which we have the seven laws of teaching. So if we were going to have the seven laws of the seamstress, we would talk about the law of the seam, we'd talk about the law of the fit, we'd talk about the law of the zipper, the law of the button. I don't know what else. You'd, that's about where, where I start losing traction because I don't know the laws. Of, but if I were going to excel in being a tailor, I guess, I'd have to understand the laws that are governing that work, right? That makes sense. Same it is with raising grass seed or other things. All worthwhile human endeavor governs laws. And Milton, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John Milton Gregory, um, he says that if we understand the law, well, then we can have skill in the work. We're on B. Skill-based enthusiasm is much better than emotionally-based or emotional-based enthusiasm. It's all right to get excited about something. I can get excited about, let's say, big tractors, or I can get excited about grass farming. But that's only going to carry me a little ways, not nearly as far as I need to go. Studying the law produces skill, and so we can work off of skill rather than just work, working off emotion. It is true that what you lack with skill, you can make up with Enthusiasm. There's a measure of truth to that. Depends where we apply our enthusiasm, right? If we apply our enthusiasm to study the lesson, well, yes, then our lack of skill will be increased by actually understanding the lesson because we put enthusiasm into learning the lesson. But if our enthusiasm is only emotionally based, all we're going to do is shout about things. <laughs> we're probably not going to cut to the quick and be as effective as we should. So the seven laws of teaching are enabling. 
law we tend to think of as restricting and limiting. But not so, says Gregory. The seven laws of teaching are enabling, they're enlivening, they're enriching. Take your teaching to new levels of flight as we understand them. Did we have some questions about the uh, blanks for number one? Everybody got that? Maybe we started. Okay, the top section, it's a classic. Serving as a standard of excellence and enduring. I think maybe I misled you there a bit, didn't I? I think maybe I said we're not starting on the handout, but we actually did. Published originally in 1884, sanitized in 1917, reprinted in 2004. Right, just shortly we're going to go to the content of the book. Just a few things about the author first. He was born in 1822. He was named after John Milton. Does that name ring a bell? John Milton was a blind poet. Um, he wrote Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, book-length poems. If you uh, use the CLE literature book, one of those has the poem On Blindness, written by John Milton. Well, John Milton Gregory's parents really liked John Milton, and so they named their little boy John Milton. But, of course, the Gregory name came along with it. John Milton Gregory began teaching school when he was 17 years old in 1839. Later, he moved on to be superintendent of the school in Detroit. I don't think I have any of this on my handout, do I? don't think so. Um, later, he founded a journal, the Journal of Education. was a contributor to that for the rest of his life. He was elected to state, state superintendent of public schools in Michigan when he was 36 years old. He was offered the position of being the state superintendent, but he declined that, saying, no, I'm a teacher, so I'm going to stay with teaching. So he actually had the possibility for what most would consider advancement in his career. He said, well, it's not advancement because I'm a teacher. When he was 45 years old, he founded the Illinois State University, and he served there as an active teacher for 13 years, and then in his semi-retirement, he worked on many educational boards, wrote several books in his retirement, including this one in 1884, died in 1898, 76 years old. Interestingly, he was asked to be buried at the university where, uh, that he founded, and his wish was honored. So John Milton Gregory is buried on the University of Illinois grounds. All right, let's go to the content of the book. <clears throat> Seven laws. We're starting with the first one, the law of the teacher. The teacher must be the one who knows the lesson or truth or art to be taught. Law one and law two sort of go together because they define who a teacher is and who a learner is. But thinking first of the law of the teacher... Um, if we're going to teach, we must know. That follows pretty simply. How many think that uh, given about five minutes preparation, you could give a little demonstration? You will not have to. I'm just asking. How many of you think you could give a little demonstration and teach somebody who doesn't know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? How many think they could do that? All right. But you know why? Because you know about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? 
All right. How about, um, how many of you think uh, if you were given about five minutes of preparation, um, you could come up here and on this table you could teach us how to make Peterski? Seriously? Well, the only reason I know is because I taught at a Russian school. See, a, P- a Peterski is, it looks like a donut. You think you're getting a donut, but what you're getting is yesterday's mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Inside something that's been deep fried. And it actually works out fairly well. All right. If you're going to teach, you've got to know. That's the larger point. Okay? I was at the Grand Coulee Dam in Washington one time, and I was looking forward to actually going into the dam, down into it, around the turbines and penstocks and whatnot. There was a high school girl there, at least that's what she seemed to be, and she and her friend were the tour guides. And it was really disgusting because she, she didn't know. And at one point when the group was moving to a new spot, I actually overheard her saying to her friend, now i got to think up next of what I can tell these people. It's kind of neat. They'll believe anything you, you, you say. Right? Does that qualify her as a teacher? Absolutely not. It disqualifies her for a teacher. And uh, I, I'm not sure if I did the right thing. I did nothing. <laughs> right. um, so, teaching will involve study. Lots of study. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to do everything, though. Many, many of our courses have very refined teacher's guide that will get you on the map very quickly. Use your teacher's guides, please. Use your teacher's guides, but don't be like the man who came to my place to sell sweepers and read to me out of a sales manual. All right. Don't be leaning that heavily on your teacher's guide. One of the things that. Uh, I began to have as a goal for myself is that I could teach a lesson without looking at the teacher's guide. So that required me to identify what were the objectives of the lesson. What is the lesson teaching? And if it's teaching a particular thing, well, usually the teacher's guide gives one or two or three objectives. They aren't that hard to remember. Get those in your head and have them in your head well enough that you don't have to be, of all things, reading out of your teacher's guide. Right? But stay ahead of your students in the course of study. If that's only one day, well, that works. I've been there. You don't have to know the whole book, but you should be at least one day ahead. Perhaps you should do some of the student work. I did that one year uh, in algebra because I had algebra as a student, but I didn't remember it very well. It wasn't the first year I taught algebra because I felt too busy studying other things. But one year I decided I'm going to do all the student exercises. And I think I pretty much did. It's about knowing. The teacher must be the one who knows the lesson. I'm going to read a little bit from this book. And you can catch the language here. This is about being a reader. If you're going to know something, you have to read. You have to read about the subject. Do not deny yourself the help of good books on the subject of the lessons. Buy, borrow, or beg if necessary, but get the help of the best scholars and thinkers, enough at least to set your own thoughts going. But do not read without deep and original thinking. If possible, talk your lesson over with an intelligent friend. Collision often brings light. In the absence of these aids, write your views. The nib of the pen digs deep into the minds of truth. Expressing thought often clears it of its dross and obscurities. You get something of the lofty language there. Okay? It's, not the kind of, it's not the kind of reading that you uh, 
you know, just slurp up real quickly with a straw as you might a milkshake. This is something you need to sort of gnaw your way through. All right, that's the law of the teacher. Law of the learner. The learner is the one who attends with interest to the lesson. So what makes a student learn? What makes a person a learner? Well, when they're attending with interest to the lesson. It behooves us then to be what? Interesting. Interesting. Exactly. If the learner is, is only a learner when he's interested in the lesson, well then the teacher, yes, should be interesting. Students would rather drink from a fountain after all than a stagnant puddle, right? So try to make the lesson um, interesting. Various ways that's done. We're not going to get into all that, but this book does. One of the things that um, every law has in this book is a section that says the violation of the law. How do teachers commonly violate the law? And one of those ways is they begin to teach before they secure the attention of the students. So it is right that when you call a class to order, you wait until everybody has their book out and everybody is in that position for learning. One of the things that I used in my classroom a great, a great deal was the give me five method of calling a class to order or calling a, a room full of students to order not only for classes, but it was a means of securing their attention. Give me five was on a poster on my wall all year that said, eyes ready, hands ready, ears ready, be quiet, be still. And when you met those five qualifications, you would go like this. And it was a, it was a rather effective way um, to secure the attention of a class. Um, did you want to practice that or shall we keep on going? It's a procedure that can be rehearsed. Why don't you turn to the person beside you and just uh, start t talking briefly or listening about the course period. What song in particular was your favorite? Let's go. What song? <laughs> Okay, class, give me five. Waiting on several. All right, you may put your hands down. Let's go on. You see how that works. You get the idea, All right? Secure the interest of those that you're working with. Give me five is a good way to do it. Another thing that we need to figure out is how to deal with distractions. Um, sometimes a helicopter might be going overhead, and uh, maybe the best thing you can do is just say, run outside, you can see a helicopter. <laughs> um, that might be the best thing, rather than trying to slog on, um, because it will be more interesting than you are. Another thing this book uh, explains about interest is it talks about the different levels of interest. We can have just flitting uh, beginning level of interest. Flitting interest, I suppose, at this point, um, right now I can just scan the room and I can see with flitting interest there's a bag over there that I don't know what's in it. So there it is, and so we better move on or else we'll get distracted, right? But just noticing things and moving on. It moves up in level until we're totally absorbed. Did that, does that happen to you sometimes that you're so interested in, usually it happens to me with a reading a book or happened to me pretty much on a daily basis when I studied my lessons that you get so absorbed in it that you have to reorient when you come up again. Kind of like, is it before school? Is it after school? What time is it? Um, how many of you know what I'm talking about? All right, some dudes. Good, good. 
my dad is a preacher, and one of the stories that he likes to tell is how uh, one uh, one point there was a, a dad with a, a little toddler on his lap, and he was the dad was feeding the toddler Cheerios, and uh, but. The more the dad got absorbed in the in the message, why the more he forgot himself, and after a while he was eating the Cheerios <laughs> while listening to the message. Well, that is rather flattering when you're uh, as a preacher when your parishioners eat Cheerios, right? <laughs> um, it would be appeal to their interests and aspirations. Learn to know your students enough that uh, you can know what they're interested in. Another thing that uh, this this uh, author really makes a point about is planting seeds and not plants. He said teachers should plant seeds and not plants because if if we're teaching plant, I mean, yeah, if we're if we're planting plants, it's suggesting that we're doing too much of the thinking and there's nothing for them to discover. There's nothing for them to 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 really work through mentally, and so. We shouldn't be telling them more than we absolutely must. That's kind of an interesting concept because we tend to think that the more we explain, the better of a teacher we are. Well, we should be planting seeds, not plants. All right, let's move to the law of the language. The language used as a medium between teacher and learner must be common to both. Common. Amen, anyone? <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, again, because I taught a Russian school and we had a Russian cook, we would say that little rhyme to them, which basically says, thank you to the cook for the good food that you made for us. Right? <laughs> well, not only must it be English, but also it must be words that are actually understood in English. Right? So... Um, if I were to say or, or quote this saying, there are no atheists in foxholes, how old must the students be before I've actually communicated something? How many think a fourth grader could understand that? Give me thumbs up if you, you think a fourth grader could understand there's no atheists in foxholes. Not a chance. All right? Really, you understand what a foxhole is, right? It's out in the battlefield where the, where you dig in, you know, with a shovel or the butt of your rifle or whatever, to get yourself down even with the ground so the bullets whiz go past you, not into you, right? This saying, there is no atheist in foxholes, mean that everybody at that point when they're staring morality and danger in the face believes in God, right? So what age level do you think a person would have to be? What grade level? Just Just suggestion before they'd understand that. Seventh, all right, probably at least seventh. It depends on what you were studying, perhaps. Okay, but you see what we're saying? It's totally possible to actually be using English and say there are no atheists in foxholes. And Gregory says that can mean no more than drum taps. Boom, boom, boom. No meaning, right? They heard it, but it didn't communicate anything. Teachers use similes and they use metaphors, right? In other words, they say, now you'll find that this is like thus and so, like and as, all right, or the, or the language of similes and metaphors. Stories really, really help, too, um, to be able to get 
truth communicated. I remember hearing that in a mission setting, there was a visiting minister who had an instruction class, instruction for church membership and baptism class. And he was, he was uh, kept saying over and over again that the church is a pillar and a ground of the truth. Well, you maybe heard that yourself. When you actually stop and think about it, I'm not exactly sure what it means myself. But he kept saying the church is a pillar and ground of the truth. And then the local pastor, the resident pastor, asked the one who was being instructed, do you know what a pillar, uh, do you know what that means? And uh, she said, well, sure. She said, I lay my head on a pillar every night. Um, again, again, we're missing it completely. The language used as a medium must be common to both. All right, let's go to uh, the law of the lesson. The lesson to be mastered must be explicable, I almost said explainable, explicable in the terms of truth already known by the learner. The unknown must be explained by means of the known. The lesson to be mastered must be explicable in terms of truth already known. Already known are your words there. Explicable has the idea of explainable and understood. I think the the story that helps me understand this the best is when the uh, first man walked on the moon. That was 50 years ago this summer, right? There was the anniversary of that event. But when the first men walked on the moon, this was a totally new experience, right? There was nothing familiar, hardly. And the one man, uh, the, the two men played like boys in the dust, and he scooped up dust and was pouring it into his other gloved hand and back and forth, and the other was doing the same thing. And the one said, this reminds me uh, of something like, like, there's a simile metaphor, um, but he said, it reminds me of something like baby powder. And the other one said, Oh, I was going to say Portland cement. Now, notice how in an otherworldly situation they went back to the known world to, to you know, define the new. Okay? So, if we're going to have a lesson on direct objects, one of the first things that we're going to start doing is stuff like this on the board. We're going to say it's a direct object is a word that directly receives the action from the verb, right? Well, if you don't understand subject and verb or subject and predicate, things are going over our heads, right? So much of knowledge is like a stair step. In this case, if we're going to understand direct objects, we need to understand subjects and predicates, right? We need to understand um, if we're going to use the word verb or if we're going to use the verb predicate, we have to understand that those are interchangeable, right? So much of what we know Everything of what we know is in terms of what we already know. And by that, we just continue to build on our existing knowledge. So, when you're going to teach a new skills-based lesson like math or language, it's really, really helpful to identify what do we need to know before we can do this new step. And that's why it's really, really good to begin teaching a new lesson with review. So if you're going to teach... Uh, the addition of fractions without, uh, or the lesson being about um, not having like denominators. Well, it's a real good thing to start out with the addition of fractions with like denominators. 
and then introduce the new. Is this making sense? I think it is. It's why we can't promote students to the next grade even if we want to. But if they haven't learned, the biggest favor we can do is to keep them back. And it's why sometimes in the sixth and the seventh and the eighth grade, students lose traction in their school experience. It's because maybe they weren't grasping the truths that they should have been way back there. And so now they're, they're missing or they have an unstable uh, course of, of uh, bricks in their knowledge. And, and we can't continue to lay the wall of knowledge on top of a missing course of bricks. All right, let's go now to law five and six. Those are sort of a pair, just like one and two were a pair. Five and six are a pair. Five is the law of the teaching process, and notice law number one was the law of the teacher, and then law number six is sort of similar to law number two, the law of the learner. But law number one and two, we're talking about what a teacher is and what a learner is. Now we're going to talk about what a teacher does and what a learner does. So teaching is, reading the law now, arousing and using the pupil's mind to grasp the desired thought or master the desired art. So teaching is arousing and using the pupil's mind. Again, I'd like to read a bit. Right now, this uh, again, uh, you might not be able to understand everything in a single read, but here it is. Thus far, we have considered teaching as a communication of knowledge, but this defines the act by its results. Whether by telling, showing, explaining, or setting lessons, the teacher seems to communicate knowledge, but there is a deeper and truer view of the teacher's work, a profounder and more philosophical explanation of his function. Behind and beyond all the telling, explaining, and lesson giving, there lies as the essential aim of it all. And of all that the teacher does, the awakening and setting in action the learner's mind, the arousing of his self-activities, as they have been called, those faculties of cognition, imagination, and reasoning, whose action must always be voluntary and self-impelled. Right? There was another sampling of the book. But do you get what it's saying? If the student's mind isn't moving, if the student's mind isn't comprehending, and if they're not able to uh, adopt the new behavior, the new skill, the teacher hasn't taught. True teaching is not really giving knowledge, but stimulating the pupil's mind to, to gain it. So, students must be involved, right? When you start a class, start right away getting the students involved. And you can ask them questions that you know full well. What page number is the lesson on today? They might not even have to raise their hand to answer that. Um, what was the lesson about? And so on. Get the students engaged right at the beginning. The students must be engaged. Otherwise, you're not really a teacher at all. You're just facilitating something other than teaching. Right? The law of the learning process, law number six. Learning is thinking into one's own understanding a new idea or truth, or working into habit a new art or skill. So teaching is thinking 
next blank there is habit. So learning is reproducing in one's own mind. You think about this a little bit and how these words are linked. Think of the concept. Concepts are what we teach. But that which is conceived is a concept that's understood, right? And conception is something that happens internally and silently. But there is something happening. John 7:17 says, If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine. And what this, I believe, is saying is that we learn by doing. So there must be some doing. There must be some action on our part, whether by hand and the mind combined, I guess is basically what we mean, right? So how do teachers make learning happen? Well, again, reward the student thinking. If somebody puts together, they have an aha moment, and there was obvious conception, or there was that, um, that grasping of a concept, be quick to praise. Say, did you see what just happened? He got it. He saw this, and he put it with that, and that's what the lesson's about. Right? Or... If somebody comes and says, you know how yesterday we were learning in math how to, uh, how to read electric meters? Well, I, here's, an, here's, here's what ours read last night, and ours actually had those dials that went this way and that way. Most of them anymore are electronic. But right away, right there, you can say, you get 3% extra credit that you can use when needed most. Right? And they'll keep that. You don't have to. They'll be sure to trot it out when they need it. Right? What we're doing here is we're rewarding the learning process. We're rewarding that thinking and that application of the lesson. All right, so praise it. Help them connect the, to the big, to the whole, and when they do it themselves especially, oh my, that's wonderful, wonderful good. To so reward that independent investigation. All right, the last law is the law of review and application. So the test or proof of teaching done. The finishing and fastening process must be a reviewing, a rethinking, a re-knowing, a reproducing and applying of the material that has been taught, the knowledge and ideals and arts that have been communicated. This is a law that I grew in my understanding of. I used to sort of think of review as something that was pretty optional, something that uh, was, well, you did if you had to. You did if you had time. I think the longer I taught, the more I understand, understood that review is very important. I'm going to read again from page 138 here. The words of the law seeks to include the three chief aims of reviews. So now you're going to learn the three chief aims of reviews. One, to perfect knowledge. Number two, to confirm knowledge. And three, to render knowledge ready and useful. It would be difficult to overstate the value and importance of this law of reviews. No time in teaching is spent more profitably than that spent in reviewing. Other things being equal, he is the ablest and most successful teacher who secures from his pupils the most frequent and thorough and interesting reviews. Here's a question to consider. Suppose that we didn't have to do any review in school. Suppose review were not part of the learning process. How many years would a student have to come to school till they learn everything 
that your school offers in its course of 1 to 8 or 1 to 10 or 1 to 12. Jonah's back there doing this. One. That's right. right. So where do we get the notion that review isn't important? Review is exceedingly important. Right. So let's not neglect those review sections. Right. Again, lead into new lessons with reviews. That's a great time to use review. And that's it. That was the seven laws of learning. A whirlwind tour, no doubt. But if we can master these seven laws, we can teach with skill. We can teach with skill-based enthusiasm. Any questions or comments in the time that remains? We can dismiss a bit early if you like. But anything that you'd like to discuss further? And two, does anyone have it? To render knowledge knowledge ready and useful. To perfect, confirm, and render it ready and useful.